everybody and welcome to this week's show. Nice to have you in the house. Nice to have you with us on the Mojo Radio Show. This week we're heading down to Mexico. Anybody who's been on the journey with us over the last couple of years in the Mojo Radio Show, you'll probably recognise that song, one of our faves from a band called The Dead Daisies. We've got a new album coming out and we catch up with the lead singer, former member of Motley Crue, and he is the lead singer of the band. He's on the line with us all the way from Nashville in America today. And we're talking about copywriting, the creative process, performance. It really is a cracking show, not just people who enjoy rock and roll, but just people in general, when you have to perform, make a speech, write content for your website, write a blog. And that's kind of what the show is all about, folks. It's about finding people that we think are interesting, have something to share, have got their mojo working in and out of work. We talk to them, extract their opinions, their thoughts, their tips, their tools, package it up, have a bit of fun, and hopefully help everybody get their mojo working. Before we jump into it and talk to John Karabi, Robbo behind the panel, drive the big red bus that is the Mojo Radio Show. G'day to you, sir. How are you doing today? Good, mate. Very well, thanks. And can I also just add to what you were just saying? If you're not aware of John Karabi, jump on our Facebook page and have a look at a couple of the pictures that are there or Google him. If you want to talk about branding, like someone who lives, breathes, (laughs) dresses rock and roll, John Karabi would have to be the pin-up poster boy, wouldn't he? I got to say, one of the the moments uh, for the people who are maybe new to the show, we interviewed uh, some of the members of the band. Uh, in a hotel room when they were on tour in Australia. They were touring as support to KISS. And we had an early morning interview session with the guys and they came in with their sunnies on, all totally rock and roll. Mm. And we knew the interview was going good when Karabi took his sunglasses off and <laughs> leaned into the interview. It's like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're, now we're building a <laughs> now connection. Now switched on, that's right. And, yeah. and we did build a connection because the guys actually rang us from Nashville to say, hey, the guys at the Mojo Radio Show, are they still on the air? Can we chat to them about our new album? So... Mm. We're very privileged to have John on the line and in a couple of weeks' time we're going to catch up with bass guitarist, former Thin Lizzy Snake bass guitarist, the legend Marco Mendoza, who's been mm. through a pretty, pretty interesting life and we're going to track his life and extract some learnings and talk about the new album. So that's all coming up. Uh, before we start the show, mate, I found this interesting piece during mm. the week, which I'm not sure I actually agree with, yep. but I thought it was worth running up the flagpole. You can throw it out there. <laughs> Monday morning mojo. So the headline, and I will put this, um, this is from Inc. Magazine. And the headline says, the science of Instagram, how it actually makes you happier. Now, right. this is some study that was done by the University of Southern California Marshall School of Business. And what they did is they took two groups of people and they put them into activities like sightseeing tours, uh, going to a museum, uh, simply having lunch. One group, they said, take a whole bunch of photos. The other group, they gave no camera, no phone, no photos. Now, the back end of this, uh, which was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, which, you know, it's something you and I spend a lot of time <laughs> invested in reading that little journal, that little puppy. Yes. <laughs> Just put it down last night, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, look, it's hard to draw yourself away from it. And uh, <laughs> here's what they said in the journal. We find that taking photos enhances enjoyment of a positive experience across a range of contexts and methodologies. Mm. What they've drawn from it is that if you are taking photos 
for Instagram. Before, because you spend so much time finding the right angle and making it look great and enhancing it and changing the images and stuff, it actually means you enjoy the experience more. Now, I kind of get that, and I think from a creative aspect, it is a great creative tool. Like you're a professional photographer, you want to make it look as best you can. So there's that part of it. Mm. The downside is a lot of people who are looking at other people's lives, because you only show things in great context, the degree of envy as an emotion for us in society is ever-increasing, which that's you know one of the downsides of it. And the other thing that I question with this research is that if you are spending your whole time with a face in the screen, are you really in the moment and are you really enjoying what you're looking at and what you're experiencing? Because you and I have been to school events and you sit there behind somebody and they are filming the whole thing on their iPad and they spend their whole time focusing and zooming and getting around the head in front of them. You can't tell me they're really enjoying it as much as just sitting there and actually being in the moment with your child on the stage. Hmm. And worse still, when your kid looks out at you and you, they do something good, they look to you for your approval and a smile and a bit of encouragement and all I can see is a screen. I just, so I, I, I'm on the, I can see the value of it. I'm not sure that I totally buy into it, particularly when last week's show with Drew Ginn, which I thought was a cracking show. And I said, before the Olympics, when you're about to compete, how do you bring yourself to the moment? And he said, I put my hand in the water. And that had a profound impact on me. I thought that was one of the cleverest pieces of content that I've ever heard someone say of how to be present in a moment. I just can't see that being present in a moment is pushing the button or focusing on yeah, your iPhone. Head in, so, the, head in the viewfinder. I don't know, I'm just putting it out there. No, I think I agree with you. I am, um, uh, yeah. But, you know, I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who disagree and will hit the email <laughs> after the show's over. Well, we don't mind that, do we? I mean, that's, no, that's, that's the whole vibe of our show is that yep. we just have some fun. We endeavour to add value to people's lives. And, mm. and even if we provoke a thought and argument, the good thing is it just gets people thinking. And let's face it, the base of everything we do around Mojo is getting people to think, have an opinion, and it, more likely be curious to go, well, do I agree with that or not? That would be a good outcome to this little piece. But send all mail to darren.robertson <laughs> at the Mojo. <laughs> yeah, that'd be me. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. That's what I like the Mojo Radio Show. Speaking of getting back to you, one quick mm. thing before we uh, before we hit up uh, John Krabi mm-hmm. for a chat, and I know he's patiently waiting on the line. <laughs> but this certainly got our mojo working, Robert. This um, review we got on iTunes this week, mm-hmm. number one by Trotolino seventy two. Cool, coolest tag name. I mean, come on, yeah. Trotolino seventy two wrote headline: savvy, holistic know how for corporate gurus. Five stars. <sighs> Let me read you this, folks. Engaging, professional, and enjoyable. A cracking show delivering relevant content for corporate and creative individuals about improving themselves, their work practices, and their motivational habits and tendencies. Humor and insightful questions, why, thank you, of a wide range of guests, full of surprises, and get this, a good selection of old rockin' ear candy, (laughs) in brackets, (laughs) tunes. I mean, bang, there it is, folks. Booyah, touchdown, 
Trotolino 72 makes miracles happen. I tell you what, those couple of grand we coughed up were worth it, weren't they? Absolutely. <laughs> Money well spent. But I thought that was a nice segue mm. to a true rock and roll guru, uh, John Karabi. What do you say? Indeed, let's the do it. The Mojo Radio Show. So I reckon before we hook into this interview, let's get him in the mood, shall we? Have a listen to this. <laughs> do you reckon that'll do it? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so it's been a while. The crowd's on their feet. John Karabi, mate, welcome back to the Mojo Radio Show. How are you guys? Yeah, good, man. Thanks. And you? Mate, we're great. And uh, it has to be said that when somebody of your stature at a band like yours wants to come back on the Mojo Radio Show, that's got to be a good day for us, mate. <laughs> that pretty, uh, that, that's pretty – you know what? Listen, I, and, and for me – the fact that you guys want to talk to me again is actually pretty good. <laughs> we reckon you got a lot to share, mate. Um, we haven't spoken to you for about a year. Lots has happened in the Dead Daisies camp. Bring us up to speed, mate, with the uh, the latest news, the latest recordings. What's happened, mate? Well, since then, um, obviously, if you remember, Richard was in a bit of a motorcycle little yeah. accident there, and he couldn't come with us to... Um, Australia, but he wound up um, healing very nicely and he finished the rest of the European tour with us. Um, and unfortunately, prior to the holidays, um, Dizzy and Richard both told us that there was a very good possibility that Guns N' Roses would be reforming and going back out this summer. So they didn't, they did, they weren't sure about how involved they could be with the next Dead Daisies record. Um, Richard, on the other hand, turned us on to, um, well, you know, he suggested Doug Aldridge from Whitesnake um, to take his place. And um, right after the holidays, I guess in January, um, we all got together here in Nashville, Tennessee, where I live. Uh, Doug flew in. We had never really played with him up to that point. Um, And we got together and we wrote and recorded a new record called Make Some Noise. And um, since then, we've done a couple of, like, one-off shows. We did a festival in Germany about two or three weeks ago, and then we did a thing. It's kind of like the NAM show in L.A., uh, but it's like in, it was in Germany. It's called Music Messa. So we went over and we did that for a week, and uh, it's, been, it's been awesome, man. Doug's, you know, stepped right in. He's done an amazing job. He's a great guitar player, but he's a great songwriter and just a great guy, you know, just to hang out with and have some fun with. So um, it's it's been awesome, man. It's I'm, I'm very excited about it. And our new record is coming out August 5th. So Make Some Noise is the album title. I've always been curious, John, how does a band where you have so many songwriters, you've all got a, a fantastic back catalogue of bands and music you've been involved with, how, how does a band come up with a title that everybody digs and wants to run with? Well, you know, to be honest with you, we didn't really have an album title once we started writing. It's funny, like the Dead Daisies kind of, it works in a very odd way because some of the members in our management live in Australia, some are in LA, I'm in Nashville. Um, So geographically, it's not like we can just get together and rehearse and write some new material. So we have an odd way of doing things. We all just got together uh, like we did on the last record we got together with pretty much no actual finished songs. We just had riffs. And the five of us got into a room and with Marty Fredrickson, our producer, and we just wrote, God, I think we had about 
15 or 20 ideas in a week. And then we went into the studio and started tracking and we narrowed it down to like 12 songs and make some noise just kind of came together because we were, we were all kind of, you know, we're all in awe of a lot of the seventies classic rock stuff. And I I don't want to say it was ripped off of or whatever, but it's kind of our tip of the hat to like Queens. We will rock you. There's no genius lyrics there. It's just basically one of these things where it's like, get up and make some noise and blah, 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 whatever. And we just kind of put the song together and we're like, man, this song came out awesome. And then when we looked at all the titles of all the songs, we just went, you know what? Why don't we just call the record Make Some Noise? I've got to ask you quickly. There's a cover on the album of Fortunate Son, one of the all-time great rock songs. The cool thing that I loved about it is it's not a cover as such. You've, you've very much dead daisied it, but with respect to the original. that a difficult thing to sort of take something that's you know groundbreaking on its own you know such a well-known rock song and then turn it around and make it your own is that is that is that a difficult thing to do and what sort of thought do you have to give to the original Uh, you know again we don't really we don't really think about it man you know it's like the one thing i can say about the daisies i know everybody's you know a lot of the press that we get and the reviews and Everybody's like, oh man, this is a super group and they use the term rock stars and whatever. Mm. And, you know, but the funny thing of it is, is, you know, call us what you want, but at the end of the day, we're all still fans of music. Like, I'll go sit at a bar and watch an American football game and I'll drop 20 or 30 bucks in the, in the jukebox and it's just all this great, you know, Grand Funk and Old Aerosmith and Queen and Humble Pie and Mountain and all these great songs that we grew up listening to. So if you've, if you've ever seen the Daisies live, we actually do a couple of cover songs in our set. We don't really see anything wrong with that. We're like, we're just tipping our hat to some of the bands that we grew up with. And last year when we were on tour, um, we did quite a few headlining shows on our own. And we would play our set, and then at the end, we would come out and we would do, at the very end of the set, we would do Helder Skelder, um, another Daisy song, and then we would end it with Fortunate Son, and it just went over great. So we just kind of jammed it, and um, and we just kind of, you know, Doug didn't want to, you know, he didn't necessarily want to do the, the guitar riffs exactly like the record. He just wanted to be Doug, and... and um, you know, so we just kind of did our own thing, you know what I mean? And we just played it. And, but we've been playing that one for a while, and it goes over awesome. Uh, the fans love it. You know, it's for a new band like us, it's a song that everybody can, they, they can go, oh, I've heard that before. Yeah. I'll, and then they start singing and they get into it a little bit here and there, whatever. So, um, you know, we've, we've always done that. John, you, you have said to us before, and you just said it a minute ago, that you write and record straight away. 
And it's interesting that yes. when I think about it, there's a guy called Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Blink. And the prince, it was a, a you know, New York Times bestseller, world bestselling book. And the principle of that book was that quite often, what comes to mind when you look or think something first up, like immediately what comes to mind is normally the right answer, but then we don't believe it. So we spend all this time looking for other options. But in actual fact, your first gut feeling was right. Right. In the writing and recording process, why does that work for the daisies? Do you think there's some validity in not overthinking things and just stripping it down and doing what feels right? Well, you know, Richard said this, Richard Fortas said this on the last record. Like, everybody heard Revolution and they were like, God, what a great album, you know? And, and Richard's, you know, Richard actually said, I've never done an album this quick. And if you think about it, like when I did the Scream record, you know, that was my first real record. So I had my whole life to stockpile a bunch of songs and tweak them and retweak them and, you know, and then go into the studio and retweak them again and then record them. The Motley record we took a year, a year and a half before we even went into the studio. Um, but the thing that Richard was saying is, I think like the Revolution record, and even this one makes some noise. I think it's so good, or it's it's just raw, it's straight ahead. I think there's some really good stuff on there, but we don't have the time to overthink anything and tear it apart. So basically what you're hearing is truly our first initial reaction. It's like, let's go here, let's do this. And then I just start scatting melodies while the guys are sorting out the chords and we just go and then we start tracking and then I go into a room, I write lyrics, I bring them, you know, now with Marty, majority of the stuff I brought to him, he was like, yeah, dude, it's great. And then there was a couple things where we're like, okay, I really love this idea, but let's just tweak this chorus here and there. But we did it on the fly. We did it as we were going and there was no real thought process. We just, like you said, man, we just, it was our first initial gut reaction lay it down, and then let's move on. You know what I mean? It's done. Marco has said about your writing, John, he said that when we're in the studio, sometimes it's not happening. But if Marco gives you a picture or an angle, he said, John just starts to fire up all this different stuff is what he said. What's going on in your mind when you do that? Like, wh- where do you go? Like, break it down for me. When somebody delivers you a line or a picture or a starting point, where does John Karabi's mind go to in order to start building lyrics? Is this a family show? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, you know, actually, it's weird. Like, there's, there's some songs that, you know, I'll, I'll get stuck. Like, for example, uh, there's a song on the record called Last Time I Saw the Sun. We were noodling around with a different song and Dizzy and Brian were sitting there kind of BSing back and forth with each other. And I had this chord. It was very, very mellow, like acoustic thing. And they, one of them said, last time I saw the sun. And 
it, it kind of stuck. It was just there. So we worked on this last song and, and I kind of forgot about it. And Brian said, dude, whatever happened to that title last time I saw the sun? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. So I, I went to my computer. I was in a separate room and I just sat there and I kept listening to the music. And it kind of is like, what kind of a vibe am I getting from this? I, I think a lot of times for me, the music dictates, it gives me an image. It's almost like vignettes in a movie. Like I, I just see these little things. And the first thing I really thought of is like the last time I saw the sun, the last time I saw the sun. It's like being in a band, we're totally like night creatures, sleep during the day and da da da. So I just made it about lyrically about life on the road, what, what it's like to be on the road. the last but the other one um, I was having a lot of difficulty like I couldn't come up with a catchphrase for long way to go and no time to get there and we were in the studio and I had almost most of the lyrics done there was a couple songs that I was still working with and I was walking into the control room David Lowy was walking out he had just finished his guitar part for that song and as he was walking out of the room I said how's it going buddy he goes Got a long way to go, no time to get there. And he just walked. And it was like, bing. I went back into the room and I started coming up with lyrics and then I gave him to Marty and then Marty and I tweaked him and we just kind of made it about a lot of things that are socially happening, you know, with everything that happened last year in Paris and then all the stuff that you hear about that happened in Orlando and just like the race riots that are going on everywhere in the world, you know, whether it's about religion, whatever. And it just, I just throw it down and, and it worked. Do you see a lyric? I, you know what? I don't see lyrics. I see pictures. It's weird. I, I, don't, I can't explain that, but when I'm writing lyrics... I actually see almost a little video in my head. It's like a little, like I said, vignettes, like yeah. little pictures. And then I, and then I just describe it. I somehow just write it down and, um, it just works. It works for me. It might be ass backwards or totally wrong, whatever, but it works for me. It's half time on the Mojo show and time to pause. For a cause. Hi guys, my name's Joel Pilgrim and I'm from the organisation One Wave. We're raising awareness for mental health through surfing and the wellness of the ocean. The idea is to get together and to start conversations around mental health and to really help people understand that it's absolutely okay to not be okay. We dress up in fluoro and we meet up at beaches all around the world at Fluoro Friday at 6.30 in the morning on Fridays. And uh, we've also got the One Wave Surfing Experience for people with high mental health needs to get together and really feel what it's like to learn how to surf and to turn their life around through um, you know, recovery and you know, functional recovery in a real way. So get on our website, onewaveisallittakes.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to love your support. There's also a chance to donate and to change people's lives. And, and I guess um, the, the fact of the matter is the only way we're going to really change an issue that so many people battle alone, being mental health, is by standing strong together. 
The Mojo Radio Show. And I love speaking with songwriters uh, or poets or creators like yourself, John, because there are people listening to the show who... I would love to speak with one too if you meet one, just you can tell them to call me once in a while. <laughs> we, um, but there are people, I mean, we all have to write. So I am also right. thinking of a guy who's going to write the copy for a website. He's going to write a blog tonight. He's going to write a wedding speech. He's going to write a presentation to try and win a piece of business. And I think it's interesting of the things that I've picked up from you is you see it in your mind, but you have to be open to it. Like when you walk past David Lowy in the, near the control room, you have to be open to seeing or hearing something to as a spark to then write. And something I've heard you say is that sometimes it doesn't happen and you have to be okay with that. It, it's a lyricist, For a lyricist, you said that not everything is going to be awesome. Is it important for you to not force it? You know what? I, I just have this weird thing like, and it was funny because I, I thought like, I truly thought that I was like the only one and then I read this book by, uh, like, Joe Perry did a book a couple years ago. And all throughout the book, like, he's, he talks all throughout the book about Aerosmith's second record and their third record and their fourth record and, and so on and so forth. And he's like, Stephen notoriously is like, hates writing lyrics. He, like, Stephen... It's, it's like a chore for Steven to write lyrics. The thing with me is I can have like a really long dry spell, but then the minute I get into the studio with the guys, it's weird. I don't know if like my brain wakes up, but as soon as I start listening to the guys putting songs together or, or in the same process, I'll be sitting with a guitar and I'll come up with a riff. And I guess the creative part of your brain wakes up and then all of a sudden it's like, I hear everything. And like, I'm listening to the drums. I'm listening to the bass. I'm listening to all the guitars, the vocals, the backing vocals. And something happens where it's like two weeks prior to that, I may have nothing to say. And then all of a sudden we get into the studio and I've got everything to say. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, I can't, it's just, it's a weird thing. And so I just kind of, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to worry about it anymore. I'm actually in the process of writing material for a new solo record as well. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, you know what? I'll come up with the music. I'll come up with the melodies. And at some point, somewhere, somehow, like the lyrics will come to me. It'll, it'll, it'll happen. So does that make someone like Prince an absolute freak? When you hear the stories about the amount of songs that he had locked away in his basement, he just sounds like he was prolific, like almost a song a day sort of guy. I have this record of Prince's. I thought he was a genius. And I have a record. Of, it's, it's like a triple record that he released probably 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And it's called or the, the Singles, B-Sides, and whatever, you know. Mm. And there's a couple songs on there that I never heard before. And he's got this one song on the record and it's it's just called God. It's like him with a piano. Sounds like he's in a reverb chamber mm. with a piano and he's just making these sounds with his voice. And it's this really kind of primal 
odd thing, you know, but there's people out there. I think one of the biggest things for artists, um, and you said it earlier, is that they, they come up with something and they immediately begin to dissect it. Mm. And I think the great artists, like guys like Prince, have learned to just do. Like, whatever they come up with, they kind of just lay it down, write some lyrics, and just finish, like, just finish it, put it aside. Whether it's great or not, they just put it aside. And, you know, now let, let's face it, every song that Prince has got in that vault may not be a number one bestseller, you know what I mean? Or it may not be a number one hit single. 70% of that could be just odd stuff that nobody would be interested in. Who knows? But he, I think he just kind of mastered the art of not dissecting every little thing that he did. You know what I mean? Uh, or, or just going with his gut instinct. Mate, on stage, I mean, you're, there's no question, you're a great front man. Robbo and I saw you. The last time we actually saw you was at Fraser Motorcycles when the, the Harley-Davidson dealership and you did that private. Oh, uh, yeah, that was great. That was a great day. Gig. I was very upset that they didn't give me a door prize. <laughs> we we were upset. I was really, you know, looking up some of those Harleys. I'm like, eh, come on, yeah. guys. Yeah. Anyway. You've got, you got to say, though, if you didn't, even if you didn't walk away with a Harley, free beer is still a pretty good thing, right? Well, actually, to be honest with you, I don't drink beer. I'm, I only do stuff that can hurt me. But, uh, <laughs> like, whisk, but you know, I'm a whiskey drinker, so. Yeah. Um, no, it was, it was good. It was a great thing. It was a great day, great cause. We had a great turnout. It was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And what, what occurred to me, John, leaving the gig and reflecting back on it is, you're not only a great singer with an amazing voice, but you tell great stories and you you draw the audience onto stage with you guys and you give you give the songs resonance by telling a story. It must make a big difference to people when they understand what's in the song or behind the song in the same way that storytelling in business is terribly important today. Do you, are you finding that, that it really your job as a frontman is to tell the story around a song? Well, you know, first of all, like, you know, a long, long, long time ago, and it's, it's crazy, but, you know, I've seen so many different concerts, but everything from, like, stuff with orchestras to Sabbath. And... You know, the one thing that I had an uncle that used to, you know, drop me off and let me go see the shows and he would pick me back up when I was too young to drive myself. And he knew I wanted to be a musician. And the one thing that he said to me that always kind of resonated with me was if people want to hear the CD, they want to hear the CD. They can stay home and sit on their couch and listen to it there. They can save the money for the tickets, the gas, the parking, the t-shirt, all that stuff, and they can just stay home on their couch in the comforts of their own home and listen to your music. You want to give them a show. And, like, for me, I remembered it, but I, like, I always assumed that, you know, even as late as a couple years ago, I did an acoustic record and I was out touring Europe and... I was hell bent on, I got to give them their money's worth. I got an hour and a half, two hours. I got to play 30 songs. And I did it and it was, you know, it was cool. But then like it started, I just kind of started to loosen up a little bit. And then fans would yell out from the audience. They would yell things to me in an acoustic setting. Like, 
hey, play Love Shine or play this or play that. Then I started, then I got to the point where I started conversing with them from the stage. And then I thought about it. I'm like, you know, we're like afterwards I'd go sit at the t-shirt table and sign autographs and fans would say, oh, hey, that third song you did, uh, what is that called? And, And like, what's it about? So then I'm like, you know what? I don't need to do 30 songs. I could do 15 songs and just tell them little stories how the song came to be and all this other stuff. And the minute I started doing that, like it, it just, it kind of, it kind of blossomed. I figured it out. So even when we're on stage with the daisies, um, you know, there's certain points just to keep the flow of the show going. There's certain points where I'll talk or whatever, but I always try to keep it light. I try to kid around with the audience. I try to tell jokes like I don't I don't like you know yeah you might look at us as rock stars but we really don't take ourselves that serious so even when we do um, like we'll do a song like Devil Out of Time from the last record and the audience loves it they kid they laugh and it's funny but before we do that song I, I'll introduce all the guys in the band and I'll say hey we're going to do something from the last record um, I want to dedicate this song to um, all of my ex-wives <laughs> and the audience just they laugh and then I go yeah you're laughing I go I'm serious there's more than one and then they kid around and then I go yeah I'm I serious I, I want to dedicate this to all the women that are that uh, I'm currently giving all of my money to and I just just goofing off and then we go into we go into devil out of time um, and it you know they get a kick out of it it's like they, then they listen to the lyrics and they're like, ah, oh, okay, <laughs> I see what he's saying here. <laughs> you know what I mean? I've had a question saved up for a little while now to ask John Karabi. The last time we spoke to you, you told a, a fantastic story that I loved about a guy who walked past you in a bar in Nashville and you said to your wife, this town ain't so country anymore. And she said, write that yes. down to great name or a lyric for a song. My question for you is, have you done the song yet? I'm a country guy. I love my country music. That is a cracking <clears throat> lyric. What's happened to it, mate? Have we got anywhere with it? No, it's still there. I wrote it down <laughs> and I've got it. And at some point I'm going to work on it. You know what I mean? It, but it's there. I wrote it down. And it's funny though, my wife, I think I told you, my wife and I were sitting in a bar and, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Nashville, but, you know, there's all these bars, they call them honky tonks. And, and obviously there's, there's a huge influx now of like rock and roll guys. And then when you, when you think of country, like when I think of country, I think of guys like, you know, Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard and, and, you know, like all the Willie Nelson, like all the, you know, the, the classic country guys. Oh, the, oh, the old country outlaws. Yeah, the country outlaws, the, yeah. you know, the highwaymen, you know, yeah. all that stuff. And, you know, and it's funny, like this guy just came into the bar and he had a, he had like a, you know, he was a good looking guy, had long hair and, um, but he had kind of a, like a plaid flannel kind of shirt and the sleeves were cut off and he had a pair of jeans, the big belt buckle and a pair of, you know, I call them shit kickers, cowboy boots. And, but he was completely covered in tattoos and he had all these earrings in and he had a cowboy hat and he walked by me and I'm like, wow, man, this, this town ain't so country anymore. And my wife is like, 
dude, that's a great song title. This town ain't country anymore. And so it's there. It's there. I just need to, I just need to, uh, sit down, you know, obviously since the last time I saw you, I, I haven't had a moment to breathe. Um, you know, we've, we've, daisies have been touring. Um, I got done from touring with the daisies. I, I came home. I had the holidays. I did nothing. Then I went into the studio with Michael Wagner and I mixed, I, I just did a live record of, uh, the Motley 94 album in its entirety with my solo band. So I mixed that. And then literally like three or four days later, I was in the studio with the daisies writing a new record. So I really haven't had the opportunity or the chance to sit down and just focus on, you know, John Karabi and new music. But I'm, I promise you that that will be a song that, at some point gets released. Can, can we get an agreement from you, John, that uh, when that song is written and recorded, that we can do the worldwide premiere on the Mojo <laughs> Radio Show? What do you reckon, Robert? Hit him up. <laughs> There's some pressure. <laughs> let's see. Let's see what. Let's see where. Let's see where it goes. You know what I mean? But it's um, a bit non-committal, definitely- John. Nice work, John. Well sidestepped. Yeah, come on, come on, mate. Commit. Come on. Give us, throw us a bone. All right. Well, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll definitely. The minute it's done, I'll send you guys a version of it. I'll, I'll email it to you. So, <laughs> done. mate, I've got to See tell you, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a, a legendary Aussie musician, a guy called um, Buzz Biz, Bid, Buzz Bidstrup, who we were talking to a couple of weeks ago, and he's actually writing an album using the ukulele. Um, apparently George Harrison was one guy who used to write a lot of stuff on the ukulele because apparently the chords are close or something like that. Very similar. Yes. Um, and so, and yeah, and so he's actually writing a ukulele album. So, so there you go. There's influences from all over the place. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, Paul McCartney, I don't know if he's been down there yet to Australia, but he's played here a couple times in Nashville in the last couple of years. And he did, he did this segment. I, I didn't last time he was here I didn't see it but this buddy of mine went to the show and he goes dude it was so awesome he goes McCartney came on stage with a ukulele and it's the middle of the show he had a big screen behind him and he said he tells a story that back in the day George used to noodle around on the ukulele all the time and George gave me this and he goes so in honor of George and in this giant picture, George Harrison comes up and Paul starts on the ukulele. He does the first and second verse of the song, something on the ukulele. And then the band kicks in on the bridge and then he puts it down and, and then they finish it from there. Wow. Well, mate, we, uh, we should let you get on with the rest of your interviews. We know you've got a big interview day now for the new album and the new single. John, thanks for coming back to the show, mate. It's always a pleasure catching up with you. Really respect your time and um, good luck with the album, mate. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Can't wait to get back down to Australia and play, the, play some of this new stuff for you guys. It's going to be awesome. Getting your mojo working. This is the Mojo Radio Show. I've got to say, in the years that I spent at Triple M, I got to hang around a fair few rock stars. Some of them you'd want to hang around, some of them you wouldn't. He's definitely on the list of you would want to hang around. Such a nice guy. Cool guy. Absolute yeah. cool guy. Absolutely. It's so down to earth. Now, listen, uh, I've got a little story for you. Yep. Rather than try to explain it to you, I'm actually going to read it as I found it. So cop mm-hmm. this. One day, Thomas Edison came home and gave a paper to his mother. He told her, my teacher gave this paper to me and told me to only give it to my mother. 
His mother's eyes were tearful as she read the letter out loud to her child. Your son is a genius. The school is too small for him and doesn't have enough good teachers for training him. Please teach him yourself. Many years later, after Edison's mother died and he was now one of the greatest inventors of the century, he was looking through old family things. Suddenly, he saw a folded paper in the back of a drawer. He took it and opened it. On the paper was written, your son is adult, which back in the day meant mentally ill. We won't let him come to school anymore. Edison cried for hours and then wrote in his diary, Thomas Alva Edison was an adult child that by a hero mother became the genius of the century. How good is that? Mate, that's a beautiful story. That almost brought me to tears. It reminds me, there's, there's a wonderful saying, and it's great to use with children, is act the way you want to become mm. until you become the way that you act. Yeah, right. And the thing I take from that is his mother looked at him the mm. way that she wanted him to believe. Mm. And consequently, he looked at himself in the same way. So her view of him and how she treated him and her belief around him dictated what his beliefs were. Mm. And that dictates then what your behaviours are and it shows itself in actions. Mm. Had she read that letter the way it was, he would have always thought of himself that way. And yeah. I think it's a really powerful way to end the show is to, to think tonight or this morning or at work when you're with somebody else, you know, I, what are you projecting onto them with your own thoughts of your beliefs in them mm. to help elevate them to be their best? If you're a parent, if you're fortunate enough to be a parent, the way you talk, act and look at your children and what you say and do around them elevates them or hinders them. And the other part of it is that what you may have believed about yourself from being a kid or growing up or in a social group to this day doesn't have to remain the same for this particular moment and the moment that's to follow. So, mm. mate, it's just a uh, it's just a beautiful piece. It's just a beautiful piece of writing. Cracker, huh? So, I reckon that might end the show this week. On that note, we are out. The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time. <laughs>